0: Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. Carrie Nation was, of course, a prohibitionist. But so was Leo Tolstoy, Tsar Nicholas II, and Vladimir Lenin. Thomas Masaryk, founder of Czechoslovakia, was also an advocate of temperance, and so was Mohandas Gandhi. As Mark Schrad writes in his new book, Smashing the Liquor Machine, A Global History of Prohibition, around the globe, the temperance-come-prohibition movement harnessed the forces of organized religions into a broad-based progressive movement to capture the instruments of legislation and statecraft against powerful, established political actors. Mark Schrad is Associate Professor of Political Science at Villanova University. This is, by my account... His third book, which touches on some aspect of governmental policies towards alcohol, or prohibition, or temperance. Mark Strad welcome to Historically Thinking.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun.
0: So uh, this is a big book. Uh, and it is uh, – as soon as I saw the title, I knew I had to talk to you because I knew it was going to be different. Um, what's the big – let's let's talk about I, – I, let's move things around a little. Let's talk about the question that you began with. Um Obviously, you, well, you've been studying as I, this, the question of of prohibition liquor policy around the world for a while. Um, What led you into this? Why did you get involved? Why did you start thinking about that?
1: Uh, I think there are a couple different tangents. One, One, you know, sort of on the American side, one on sort of the international side. On the American side, just as a kid growing up, I was, you know, kind of venerated the Constitution as like the... Sort the, of the collective wisdom of the leaders of the United States going all the way back, you know, it started with a pretty good document, then we amend it and and things get better. You know, you look at just going through all the amendments and you're like, oh, you know, uh, get rid of slavery. OK, that sounds good. You know, equal rights. That makes sense. You know, women can vote. Great. You know, and eventually you get to the 18th Amendment and it just says no liquor. And you're like, what? wait, what? you know, that just didn't make any sense to me. And I'm like, all right, well, whatever. And then you just kind of move down to the 21st and you're like, okay, 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 forget that whole thing and just kind of erase it from... And so that was like, wait a minute, how how did we get so wrong, you know, on this that you had to put that into your constitution and then have to erase it out? So that was one thing that was always just kind of in the back of my mind since I was, a, you know, first learning uh, about politics. Um, but beyond that, I guess, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not... An American historian by any stretch. Uh, my focus has always been on, on sort of comparative politics. Um, and in Russia in particular, I've always been fascinated with Russia. Um, and, you know, so that's, that has been a long-standing longstanding uh, question, you know, because you have all these stereotypes that, you know, the drunken Russian, we all know these things. I've got plenty of anecdotes of my own of, you know, drinking in Russia and, 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 you know, that is something more than just a, a stereotype. Uh, but I wanted to get at the, the bottom of that and say, OK, well, what's what's going on with alcoholism in, you know, in Russia? And so you start looking into the history of it um, and, you know, it didn't take long before you're looking at the history and you find that actually the first prohibition country in the entire world was Imperial Russia. And that just kind of blew my mind when I first learned about it, you know, 20 some odd years ago, uh, because I thought prohibition was, you know, American exceptionalism. That's just something that's weird about the United States. And it's like, oh, yeah. well, Apparently, it's weird about a lot of countries. And so I wanted to, in this book, at least take a look and see if there's something that we can learn about other countries to then apply to, uh, you know, insight-wise to the United States.
0: And we could then, well, what always strikes me when I teach teach Prohibition in the American History Survey is, um, well, you point this out, is that it's often, it's been conceptualized as a conservative reaction to society, except this is ridiculous, Um, And as you show, we know that uh, you can see that the people who are advocating prohibition, they advocate all the latest progressive stuff. They food and drug acts, um, eugenics, uh, votes for women. They're anti a lot of them are anti-Semitic. This is all sort of this all comes with a sort of a package of the sort of the progressive technocrat. Uh, Many of this um, they share many of that basket of sort of attitudes. And one of them is. Also temperance and prohibition, putting poison in your body and stuff like that, you know, Uh, hygiene. It's all these these all come together. So this is obviously not this is not it's the populists who are anti temperance. Um, You know, it's it's the uh, it's the um, it's the your deep south primitive Baptists uh, who hate uh, prohibition politics. Um, You know, there's the true concern, not sort of uh, progressives. That was another thing. That's another problem that you you mentioned.
1: Yeah, it's a it's it's weird because as you mentioned, you know, we don't, at least in terms of the study of American history, we don't subject all those other progressive, um, you know, the, the, the Pure Food and Drug Act. We don't think about that as as cultural politics, even though it was born of the same cloth. You know, it's about community protection against predatory capitalism, but we don't say, well, it must have been killjoys who. You know, didn't want people eating spoiled meat. And, you know, that this I'm just you know,
0: about to talk to yeah. Jonathan Reese about J. Harvey Wiley, who is one of the, 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 mm-hmm. the board of chemistry. It's actually a little bit more than, there's a lot there. It's, it's very right. interesting. It's, it's very related to this sort of hygiene and sort of ideas of hygiene. But yeah, go on, go on. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I'm just saying, we, you know, we, we get so narrow, I think, in terms yes. of our, our focus that's um, you know, for me, it didn't make any sense. You know, like I, I read all the same books, you know, Mm -hmm. saying, well, you know, it's this, it's conservative culture clash. It's a symbolic crusade against immigration and modernization. It's the, the last gasp of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And, and, uh, it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, if if it it was, if it was about religion, there was no great awakening at that point in time. And, you know, with prohibitionism, And uh, how, you know, if it was a reactionary movement, how do we understand that the 18th Amendment came at the height of the progressive era? Mm -hmm. You know, and so like a lot of historians, sociologists, uh, you know, kind of do this, you know, these these mental acrobatics to try to make this make sense to them Mm -hmm. uh, when the alternative is, you know, a a lot more straightforward that it wasn't about, you know, uh, about thou shalt not. It wasn't about Bible thumpers trying to legislate. you know, morality, it was more about, uh, it, was, it was more an economic uh, reaction and a political reaction, you know, sort of, you know, community protection against sort of predatory capitalism. And that's something that you find in all these countries uh, when you look around a uh, lot around the globe.
0: And another temptation is to say, look, the uh, this global temperance movement is just really being imposed by American evangelicals on other countries. This is all part of evangelical networks. They're taking their American, you know, their, their hang ups about liquor. And they're taking overseas, but then Russia, because that doesn't work at all with Russia, um, uh, it, uh, right? I mean, as, after all, or right. Sweden, as you as, and we'll get to that in just a second. Sure.
1: Well, it, one of the things, a little anecdote that I, I kind of took the the thesis for this book and 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 spun it off, you know, took it to a conference in in London and suggested that hey, you know, this is uh, something more than what we're being told in the United States, and a, a, a colleague of mine who is um, you know, uh, that I met at this conference in in London, uh, had just completed her PhD in Mexico City. So she teaches down in Mexico City, and she was very interested in the history of uh, why it was in Mexico, you know, a Catholic country, um, you have the 1917 Mexican Constitution, which at that point in time was the most progressive constitution anywhere in the world, had, you know, all sorts of freedoms, freedom of religion, you know, suffragism, all sorts of stuff. But it had a section in there against the the liquor trade. And so, she, you know, she told me, she's like, well, I, I wanted to try to figure out why this was. Um, and so she read all the, the American literature on temperance and prohibition that says it was conservative, rural, evangelical Protestants. And so she went looking for missionaries, American missionaries that may have done this. And she found in her dissertation, you know, maybe 20 <laughs> across <laughs> the entire country of, of you know, of Mexico, and ultimately was left, obviously, with a a very unpalatable explanation that it actually had nothing to do with, you know, these missionaries. You know, it's not like they had that kind of political power to put something into the Mexican constitution. So it was something quite a bit more than that. And that's what you see in Russia and Sweden and Belgium all the way down the line.
0: Well, we're going to, I'm going to start with Russia. But one thing that was fascinating to me is to see how so much of this comes about in 17, 18, 19 There's this it's even in uh, countries that aren't experiencing the first world war. This is very related to that moment. Um, The the, this is sort of uh, and and it's happening in countries around the world who are either in the world who aren't connected with each other politically necessarily politically. Very different things are happening. But there's these prohibition rules and laws are going in simultaneously, it would seem. Is, Is that is that right?
1: Yeah, it was. And that was kind of the, the, um, the puzzle for my first book was trying to figure out, OK, well, how does this how does this whole thing work? And, and the, the short and sweet answer of it, uh, you know, which was my dissertation, became my first book, was that um, it had to do with this transnational network of temperance. Right. That mm-hmm. linked people of, uh, you know, common temperance ideologies, um, you know, in countries around the globe. But, you know, so what you find with the, the First World War, which is kind of a, you know, an accelerant to the process, um, is that, you know, uh, you've got the, these temperance ideas, you've got these publicly shared policy ideas of how to confront, you know, the so-called liquor problem. Um, and what that form takes in different countries really depends upon the national institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if you get prohibition in one country or... Uh, a, a gothenburg type system uh, in, in, in Sweden or something like that. It seems like in all these countries around the globe, all about the same time as, as World War I, there's a move for greater restrictions against the liquor trade. It's all in the same direction. It's not like anybody was going against that. Uh, but the form of that, when it came to the policy outcomes, had a lot more to do with how those policy ideas were filtered through sort of the national decision-making institutions to lead to different uh, to different policy outcomes.
0: Okay, well, let's look at uh, let's look at several case studies. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna sort of go through case studies in places where a friend was just saying to me yesterday, surely there was no ever n- never any temperance movement or prohibition movement in Central Europe. How would how was that even? Po-? Oh, just just wait, just wait. We're gonna go through these case studies, and then we're going to finally not talk about the United States in any detail. Uh, we're just gonna sort of look at the, what American prohibition looks like based on these case studies that have been established okay so your editor must have been very pleased with you because you begin the book with one of the more most compelling anecdotes I uh, in any book of history that I've ever read and that's general Tolstoy beating people to drink more um, please explain <laughs> these many people just heard the words they understand the, each individual word but not the sentence that was what that that came out but Yes, General Tolstoy once had people beaten in order to have them drink vodka. So what what set the background there?
1: So this uh, this is an interesting anecdote. I like to start every chapter with kind of an anecdote to kind of lead us in and and see what's you know, what what the the situation looks like. And so you've got this uh, Alexei Petrovich uh, Tolstoy, who is, you know, a uh, decorated war veteran uh, for many years in the the Russian uh, Imperial Army. Um, and is kind of the, the right hand man. He's the the, the the get things done guy for uh, you know for the czars, especially Czar Nicholas the first um, in the mid eighteen hundreds. Um, and so what you have in the eighteen fifties is a series of um, riots. You've got you know these these protests, and you you've, you know you get peasant protests. This was still during serfdom. You would get those peasant riots every once in a while. There'd be a peasant insurrection every, you know, 10, 15 years, and it would be up to the government to go put it down. This was a little bit different because one, it started out as being a nonviolent movement. Um, and two, it was against, uh, a temperance movement. You know, it was a, a movement begun, um, you know, at, at, a very grassroots level, uh, led first in sort of the, you know, the, the, Polish areas and Baltic areas of, uh, the Russian empire, but then moved to the Russian heartland. Um, and so it was, was supported very broadly, um, to, you know, and the movement was to not drink alcohol, you know, so it was, uh, broadly speaking, a, a temperance boycott of, uh, of alcohol. And this was a problem for the Russian state. This was a, a big issue because, uh, the Russian empire, uh, going back to Ivan, the terrible, was, had a monopoly on the sales of vodka and other alcohols as well, but mostly vodka uh, that we're talking about. Um, and so they would farm it out uh, you know, in a very kind of medieval way uh, to these tax collectors you know, who essentially ran rampant and, and uh, sort of corrupted the local governments at all layers so that they could, on, on one hand, sort of collect the czar's revenue uh, that comes from the liquor trade, but also enrich themselves quite a bit. And so you end up having, um, this, this temperance boycott because the, the peasants are getting upset that, you know, some people say that they're, you know, getting too drunk. They're being controlled by the, the government. The government's making, uh, you know, these sort of outlandish profits at their expense. And it's not just the czar who is seen as being kind of a benevolent figure who is very far off, uh, you know, in St. Petersburg, But the the local, um, you know, the the local tax farmer who was in control of the the liquor thing was seen as being sort of the the local villain. So they said, okay, well, we're going to just, you know, until we get this whole thing straightened out, we're going to stop drinking liquor. Uh, And the problem was from sort of a financial angle is that um, in a time before, you know, modern taxes, uh, you know up to a quarter to a third of the entire income of the Russian state was built on vodka taxes and so and vodka sales. And so uh, this kind of laid bare a very serious problem of sort of autocratic governance throughout Russian history, as it turns out, uh, is that if you have a movement to try to get the people to sober up, you know, in terms of public health or, you know, public welfare, uh, the government itself would go bankrupt fairly quickly. And okay. so... Um,
0: it's as if everybody in Pennsylvania, where you are, or Virginia, where I am, if we took temperance, what would the commonwealth of Pennsylvania and Virginia do for revenue? I mean, since we both we live in the state store system, uh, but this is we'll get to this sort of the weird the weird problems of economic problems that this shows up. Um, I was one curious how were there state stores or how did they how did the how was liquor distilled and distributed in Russia? I was I was curious as I was reading that.
1: Yeah, they had a couple different systems, uh, but it was all government monopolization. Uh, usually you had uh, the the retail sale was controlled by the government. There was this thing called the, the Kabak, uh, mm. which was the tavern. The local mm. tavern was kind of the, the main interface between, you know, the peasant and the Russian state.
0: Is it state owned?
1: Um, yeah.
0: It is. Yeah. Okay. Well,
1: it was, it was locally run by a guy who was known as uh, the well, the tavern keeper was the Tselovalnik the and, and uh uh in, in Russian means uh, the kisser translates as kisser. And so he kissed the cross, kissed the Orthodox cross and vowed to maintain the government's revenue. That was his oath mm-hmm. uh, was to to maximize revenue. And so. So in, uh, in,
0: in America, the president was appointing the, po- the postmaster, uh, the postmaster for, say, Hammond, Indiana. And in Russia, they're appointing the the Vika seller. But sort of the, right. the, this is like a local patronage position. And but then it's tied into tax farming as well, which makes it really you know get, get your get, lucrative. yeah get your beak wet as as they as they
1: say. Oh sure, and and this you know this whole system, the kabak and the the tax farmer between, I mean these were these were not you know and this is something I get to later in the book is that we have this image um, in our minds of. You know the, this this romanticization of, uh, of of liquor and liquor sellers back in time. You know, and I, I call it the Ted Danson effect because we think of you know the, the bartender's the guy who's there to serve you a brewski and you know listen to your problems and so on. No, that was not not in the United States, not with the saloons, and certainly not around the globe. You know, the the, the tavern keeper was sort of the primary predator of the, the local economy. He was the You know, he would – there was no, you know, packing you in a taxi cab and saying you've had enough, go home to your family. It was we are going to sit here and you're going to drink until you either pass out or you run out of money. And if you run out of money, well, then I will – he was also the local pawnbroker. I will pawn your wagon wheels. I will pawn, you know, your future crops. I will pawn your clothes, you know, to to get more –
0: best movie na- analog would be the uh, the sort of second reel of a wonderful life where Jimmy Stewart goes back and, and has the encounter in the in the saloon the bar uh, mm. with, with the guy who later was the producer of um, of Andy Griffiths show but never mind that but that's a, sort of that's that's one good thing that people have seen that they see the, the sort of scuzzy disgusting predatory, angry bartender you know it's not mm. cheers it's not he's not selling craft bourbon you know age 12 right. years or anything like that this is he's to get you drunk and take your money
1: he's there to get you drunk take your money um and you know he doesn't care about you right he's not and he's that's why in, in some cases and this is true even in the united states and, and one of the, the interesting anecdotes uh that that struck me as to how different things are now as opposed to things are were back then uh, so we that we talk about like temperance. We talk about carry nations, smashing saloons and setting all the drunks to flight. Um, the interesting thing that, that stuck out to me was that she always did her saloon smashing at eight o'clock in the morning. You know, and so and there were people drunk at eight o'clock in the morning, and that's just to I think our modern minds were like that's just crazy, you know. But those people have been drinking all night, and they're drinking into the morning, and so they weren't being packed away going back home, and that's that that was true as much in the United States as it was in uh, you know in Russia or Turkey or in any of these other places where they were just trying to 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 extract. And you know, it wasn't just you know what they were doing. In some cases, they were you know they would they would water down your drinks. Sure. Uh, you know, if you were drunk, they would uh, water it down even more. They'd stick their thumb into you know when they're pouring you a shot, so that um, you know you weren't getting as much for your money, and all that just kind of went into their own pockets. Um, you know, in terms of what they uh, what their own profits were like,
0: it wasn't exactly like there was going to be competition at the bar down the street. I mean, this is we've got like a local monopolistic system, um, which enjoys immense competitive advantage,
1: right. Right. And so one of the things that you know, that would happen in, in Russia is that, you know, if you caught a tavern keeper who was, um, you know, trying to cheat you, that was a big deal. Uh, you know, if you if you caught somebody And one way that they would tell, uh, especially in cold Siberian nights, is that they would take their vodka. Uh, and if they there was an accusation that the, you know, the, the tavern keeper was uh, was watering it down too much, they would take a shot of vodka that was served. They put it outside. And if it froze uh, then there was some splaining to do, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, and this...
1: There all, a, a kerfuffle at that point.
0: All this explains why General Tolstoy, uh, the troubleshooter for the Tsar, why he has people publicly beaten and has vodka poured down their uh, forced open mouth.
1: Right. And so that was, the idea is that it was not only a, you know, for, for Tolstoy, uh, you know, who was a, a very distant relation of the the great uh, writer, um, but uh, you know he was, uh, you know he was the guy who the czar would call in when there was a cholera epidemic or where there you know there was a, a you know an uprising that needed to be squashed. He was kind of the right hand man, um, and so when it came to you know sort of putting down this this temperance insurrection, you know he would have people beaten, um, you know in the public square uh, you know, for, for, for not drinking alcohol. Uh, and then in many cases it was the, you know, they would, they would follow that up and have the, um, you know, to teach them the lesson, they would have the, the soldiers, uh, or in many cases it would be the the tax farmer himself who would essentially pour liquor down the, the throats of, of, you know, some of these Russian peasants. Um, and so this was, this was outstanding at the time people, you know, you had sort of, People like Alexander Herzen, who was an emigre Russian living in England, uh, kind of this this liberal trying to reform the autocratic system in Russia, and he was just flabbergasted at the news that was coming out of Russia. He says, "This sounds crazy that the Russian government is pouring vodka down peasants' throats, but it's entirely true." You know, you've got it coming from all these different areas uh, around the Russian Empire at that point in time.
0: So there's a a way in which, well, not just a way in which there is a. Drinking vodka is a way of showing one's loyalty to the czar and to the regime and to the entire system.
1: Right, and and so you know, it's, an, a, it's of, a loyalty oath. And a lot of people, you know, drinkers kind of just self-justifyingly said, "Well, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm. It's for the greater good of the community. It's greater good for the czar and, and and whatnot. Even though a lot of it was for the greater good of the private profit of the, you know, the." Uh, you know, the tavern keeper or the, uh, uh, the, the tax farmer.
0: Now, speaking of the novelist, uh, Leo Tolstoy, um, he develops a very different attitude than his distant relation. Could you briefly describe that? And I'm particularly interested in some of the people whom he influences, who then you discuss later in the book. His, his influence is vast, um, not as a novelist, but as a social reformer uh and as a social theorist
1: yeah so tolstoy is a fascinating guy and i'm I'm glad i get to speak about this in english uh for the last three days i've been zooming into a conference in saint petersburg where i I did a a whole paper on this in russian uh you know and of course with the time change i'm i'm doing it over zoom at four in the morning you know speaking in russian (laughs) you know my cats are looking at me funny like what are you doing um but uh but yeah Tolstoy is a fascinating historical character he's you know he's already known by the 1860s 1870s as the world's greatest writer um but he's very uh you know he's he's part of a this noble family um you know as his great uncle was uh, as well so in high esteem uh but he ends up spurning all that he, he you know all the wealth uh, of arist- you know arist- aristocracy I should say um so he spurns the aristocracy and sort of takes up a, the life of a poor peasant on his massive estate south of Moscow and Tula. It's called Yasnaya Polyana. Um, and so he just kind of leads a a, a more austere uh, existence. And he's an interesting figure in his in his own right. So one, he's a global celebrity, uh, but he also develops um, you know, this sort of civic religion for lack of a better term, uh, it, people have a hard time sort of categorizing Tolstoy. What is he? You know, is he, is he a, well, he's a Christian? Yes. He speaks a lot about, um, you know, the, the sermon on the Mount of, of Jesus Christ, uh, talking about, um, you know, the turning the other cheek and never raising a hand in violence. And you should not, you know, there's, which is the foundations of a lot of the sort of nonviolent resistance that you see with Gandhi that you see with Martin Luther King, uh, junior and so on. um, and so he sees that as like the core commandment is nonviolent resistance uh, is key. And for him, the, the, the antithesis of nonviolence is the state. The state has a monopoly on violence. And so um, he sees in very clear terms sort of the exploitation of the society by the state. And he focuses primarily in on this exploitative relationship. We've already been talking about it, you know, when it comes to liquor. Um, and so when, when he was a younger guy, when he's in the military, when he was getting all the material for war and peace and, and was in the Crimean war, he led a dissipated life. You know, he, he admitted it, you know, he was went to, he drank a lot and, and went to brothels and whorehouses and so on. Um, but in his older years, he, he recognized that this was this entire system was not only bad for himself and bad for public morals, but it was the, the way that the the state was enriching itself. And so, um, so he was outspoken against this in his writings. Um, a lot of his writings that were against the state and against the you know, the financial foundations of the state in alcohol were banned by imperial censors. Uh, but that didn't stop a lot of people from going to Russia and meeting with Tolstoy and, and kind of, you know, building upon these sorts of insights, uh, including people like Thomas Masharik of, of, Czechoslovakia, of, you know, William Jennings Bryan, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, but, um, uh, but, but yeah, so it was, it was very interesting that, uh, on, on the one hand, he starts on his estate, his own, uh, union against drunkenness. He starts his own temperance organization. Um, and this was crazy because at that point in time, Russia is very much an autocracy, as we, we've talked about, and it, its foundations and you know financial foundations are based on selling vodka. Um, and so the, the autocracy itself was very much against any type of temperance organization. They rooted it out ruthlessly. They would shut down any sort of independent temperance organization, quote unquote, lest they should be uh, confused for separate religious sects. And that would be threatening to the Russian Orthodox Church and all sorts of stuff. Um, so, but his, his, you know, he was such a a global celebrity, he could kind of get away with having his own temperance organization.
0: Um, so one of the things that you persuade me, um, is that this temperance was massively internationally important. Um, and it, in a way it almost becomes. Too big a category to put people in. (laughs) I mean, there's so many. I think you are certainly arguing that it's part of progressive politics. and Okay. Uh, But on the other hand, some of the people that you talk about next are people who are literally, well, one has the other killed. Uh, We're talking about Nicholas II, the Tsar, and Vladimir Lenin. And when both of them fit into the temperance category, this is such an enormous category um, that it kind of is like, it's no category. If you see what I mean, I mean it, that's not, but that's not quite fair because there it becomes an important part of both of their political worldview. Is that, am I, am I, what, what how would you respond to that?
1: No, that's fair. That's fair. Um, and I think that's, again, part of the, 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 the consequence of our, our long-standing sort of narrowing down of history into, into yeah. very small bits, and then we like to have these labels and we'll say prohibitionist this and temperance that right. and then we'll just focus on those without recognizing uh, you know sort of how gargantuan this this whole thing is you know I don't want to keep coming back to American history but you could make a, an argument that uh, all four guys on Mount Rushmore were at were, were prohibitionists at one point or another um, mm-hmm. you know well, and so, Washington
0: did have own a still I mean let's just that he was making a lot of money from uh, his still in the last two years of his life but let's sure. let yeah
1: we also prohibited the liquor traffic, uh, you know, at, at here at Valley Forge, which, you know, right yeah. down the road, here. Uh, you know, so you could make these. But the point is that, you know, we, we've narrowed it the, that definition down so much that we don't think right. so broadly about how it kind of incorporates it. The, it in, in a
0: way, ways. the gradations of one's attitude towards temperance were extraordinarily important politically mm-hmm. uh, in the 19th and 20th century and in the early 20th century. In a way, we've completely forgotten. So, right. you know, saying that I'm against the liquor trade to the Native Americans uh, was an important thing to say about oneself as opposed to whatever, just go ahead and sell it to them. You know, it's that was obviously that's not a thing anymore, but that put one on a gradation of of temperance in, in American politics. And you could say the same thing about Russian politics, but let's get let's talk about Tsar Nicholas II, because sure. he, he's turning into a drunk as crown prince. Um, but interestingly, it's his th- three Romanov uncles, one of whom, and this is why I don't quite understand how this works. Uh, you just was saying how, um, you know, that Tolstoy's thing was illegal. But uh, Sergey Romanov was the governor general of Moscow and was in the guardianship for public sobriety and funded independent uh, clinics to treat alcoholics. So uh, th- this, I realized things are maybe a little bit more uh, complex than I realized in terms of Temperance, prohibitionism, and autocracy.
1: Right. So uh, the, the backstory here, and a lot of this comes from you know it's it's only one chapter in the yeah the new I know book, but it's but a but big it's chapter kind of a but yeah it's a condensation of my last book which is the vodka politics which is like another five hundred page book <laughs> of all of Russian history that gets into this but um but the, the backstory on this is that you had you know this tax farm system uh, that we talked about has been around for for eons going back to Ivan the Terrible. Um, gets uh, They end up getting rid of that at the same time they get rid of um, you know uh, serfdom in the, the 1860s and, and kind of replace it with an excise tax system. Uh, and then in the 1890s, you have sort of the reintroduction of a government monopoly under the czars. And uh, the, the minister of finance who would later become prime minister is this guy, Sergei Vita. Uh, in, in Russia. And he's seen as this great modernizer, you know, and, and so he's trying to, to pull Russia kind of kicking and screaming into the, the 19th century, if may, maybe not the 20th century. Um, and so he uh, develops this uh, independent, this, this, this temperance organization that it was not an independent thing. It was actually a subsidiary of the Ministry of Finance. Okay. Um, and so it was a government run temperance organization, the, 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 you know, the guardianship of public sobriety. Uh, and it w- its focus was not to you know encourage abstinence from from uh, drinking government vodka, but uh, but just moderation, right? So uh, so, so, that so there's a spe-
0: of- now we're back to this idea of a spectrum of temperance and, and prohibition. This is placing people politically along the spectrum is is important and interesting. Right. Yeah. And
1: um, so to turn back into to, to Tolstoy, Vita uh, goes to see Tolstoy in Yasnaya Polyana to get sort of Tolstoy's blessing on this temperance thing. You're like, Oh, you know, Tolstoy, you're a temperance guy and I got this new temperance organization. Tolstoy won't even talk to him. Won't even let him on the property uh, and says, you know, it is immoral for the czar to be uh, profiting off the misery of his own people. Uh, you know, so it's time to lock up the czar's saloons. And this is something that starts to gain traction, even with the czar and inside his, you know, sort of inner circle. Uh, and even people like Rasputin, the notoriously debauching drunkard Rasputin, is saying the same thing. He's like, you know, it's it's really unbecoming to be, you know, living in this world of, ex, you know, where you're, you know, the richest guy on planet Earth and all your subjects are drunkards.
0: So, mm-hmm. And this leads to the extraordinary fact that you mentioned at the beginning of the, of the podcast, that Russia is the first nation to have prohibition. Uh, yep. The date, the date, however, is extremely significant uh, of when it happened, uh, and somewhat uh, l- a lamentable set of circumstances.
1: Yeah, well, it, a lot of it, you know, and, and you're right. A lot of this comes up with World War One, and there's there's kind of this, uh, as we mentioned before, internationally, this entire kind of movement towards uh, restriction against, against the liquor trade um, or outright prohibitionism. Uh, and a lot of that we kind of have to go back a little bit to, and because it, it is tied to the military in some some ways. Uh, you had the, the Russo-Japanese War beginning in 1904 to, you know, to 1906. Um, and uh, this was one, you know, it's kind of a clash of empires in, in the Pacific. Um, and this is the first time that, um, you know, European power, Russia, the great, you know, European power, uh, was dealt an enormous loss by tiny upstart Non-European, you know, Japan, and so with all the different overlays of, uh, you know, sort of the the um, racism that go with this, you know, the czar was calling the, uh, you know, <laughs> the leader of Japan a, a ring-tailed monkey, you know, sort of dehumanizing the sorts of things. So it was just thought that they were going to, you know, just walk all over Japan, you know, and and they end up just uh, just getting decimated. And you know, this is one of the first, um, you know, wars where you have you know, it, what we would call embedded journalists kind of reporting from the front line. Uh, and they are just aghast at how drunk the Russians are. And they're just getting, you know, some of the reports say that they're just getting bayoneted like pigs on the, on the, um, on the battlefield of Mukden and, and some of these other battles, you know? Um, and so the great lesson that comes out of it, eventually, you know, Russia has to sue for peace and, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, gets a Nobel Peace Prize for brokering peace between, you know, Russia and Japan and all that good stuff. Uh, but for the military around the world, uh, they draw a very significant lesson from this is that alcohol is a threat. It can mean the difference between winning and losing a war. And this becomes, you know, as historians like to talk about the, the cult of the offensive going into World War I. I also talk about the the what I, I just labeled the, the cult of military sobriety, that mm-hmm. militaries around the globe learn this lesson and go, wow, we need to institute, you know, temperance organizations. We need to institute restrictions on drinking, you know, in the military, uh, whether you're in the United States or whether you're in Britain or whether you're in Russia. And the the big one was actually, uh, you know, the the Kaiser, the Kaiser Wilhelm II was the one who says in, in 1910, declares quite strongly that he says, you know, the country that's going to be victorious in the next war is the one that is the most sober. So this is something everybody kind of uh, circles around as
0: well. Let's take that and jump to to jump, hop and skip to Germany. Uh, You know, as uh, can you explain the importance of like the schnapps to the Prussian Junker economy and why it was so embedded? I mean, Bismarck is never going to close. He Bismarck is a big advocate of the peasants drinking corn liquor and not beer. Why?
1: Yeah, this is another thing that that was. Before I started diving into it and exploring more into it, it was you know if you look at the the global history of of temperance and prohibitionism, you know Central Europe is just like a, a wasteland. Nobody really even talks about it because you think oh you think you know Central Europe you think Germans drinking beer and so on, um, but it really was a a, dis, a difference, um, and this is globally as well. I think that that we kind of blur this together with the word alcohol, but there was a very significant sort of schism between. Fermented beverages like like wine and beer on one side and distilled liquors, uh, whether that's vodka, whether that's schnapps, whether that's whiskey, um, you know, and, you know, with it comes kind of a, a completely a, a massive change in terms of sort of the cultures of drinking. Right. So whether you're in present day Ukraine or Russia or Germany or Hungary, you know. If you go back 500, 600 years, they were all drinking pretty much the same stuff. They were drinking beers and meads and, and ales and, and, and mildly fermented wines, if they can get their hands on them. Um, and, and drinking was kind of a communal experience. Uh, and a lot of this gets changed with the Industrial Revolution and the advent of uh, you know industrial distillates.
0: Well, in I mean, it, 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 17th century distillation changes. Yeah, it, it, we... Could argue about whether it's the industrial revolution or not. Maybe in a weird right. way, it's very. We could say that the very first wave of the industrial revolution is actually making liquor, distilling liquor, yep. and getting cheap liquor. Yeah,
1: yeah. We, we could talk about this. You know, it, it, it was fascinating to me to, to look at. You know, sort of the, the colonial existence in places like Africa. And you think of all the resources, natural mineral resources in Africa. The very first factory built on the entire continent of Africa was a distillery. Mm-hmm. Why? You know, it has more to do with the, you know, uh, the, the, the pro- immense profitability of the, the liquor trade in those mm-hmm. cases. Yeah. And so there are a lot of parallels when it comes to, you know, you start to see these things in, in comparative context that you you know, you know have the same dynamics in, in South Africa that you do in Germany that you do in, uh, you know, some of these other countries when it comes to the government putting a primacy on on liquor consumption as yeah. opposed to, uh, you know fermented beverages.
0: And so we've got a lot of these beer countries in Northern Europe, uh, from England all the way into Central Europe, they become gin and, you know, basic vodka, gin and vodka, some sort of clear substance. And then we've got the wine countries uh, in, this, in the Mediterranean, obviously they become brandy countries and those become sort of the the hard liquors of choice. Um, right. And that's what the Campaigners are—that's what they're trying to reform against. To try to turn away, turn in some ways, there is a conservative, and, and there's almost reactionary. They're trying to turn back to the beer culture of of Germany, go, Germany uh, bygone of bygone days. Um, Bismarck doesn't like that simply because of the economics.
1: Yeah, and so the, the economics—you know—in in the old German Empire, you kind of alluded to this. There was um, sort of a political divide. You've got all these principalities and so on, but essentially the 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 further east you go, the more autocratic it gets. The closer you get to the Russian Empire, you've got um, similar drinks, you know, being served in similar ways. You know, when it comes to the uh, the Junker class, has, you know, the aristocracy makes money off of the selling of you know mm-hmm. these uh, these distillates um, in the same way that you know they did in Russia mm-hmm. as well. So, uh, so there are a lot of parallels. But the further west you go, um, you know, where there's sort of more liberalism. Um, and uh, e- even more, you know, we're getting into the 19th century, uh, sort of more socialist movement. Um, you know, they start to see beer as being, um, you know, like you said, in, in many ways, this is not only, I don't say conservative, but this is the way that things had been traditionally. Uh, but they see it, you know, beer as being. You know, in some cases, a temperance drink. They mm-hmm. even promote it as a temperance drink. That's the way it works is- in
0: England, I think. I mean, that's right. like to, to have a to have a pint rather than going to the gin hall. You know, that's right. Um, we there's been I I know that some people are going to email me and say, "Oh, there's a a lot of controversy over the nature of the gin craze, and that was just an elite panic." Okay, let's just step aside and just say that beer was seen as a temperance drink as opposed to gin, and and not just in England but also in Belgium, as you as you discuss.
1: Yeah, it, it, all over the place. It, it became sort of this this battle of beer against you know gin or or, uh, or schnapps and so on. Uh, and so in in Germany, it was you know beer was seen as you know as, as respectable. That's something that you go to a beer hall at the end of a long working day to mm-hmm. to relax and so on. Uh, you know, gin the the, the schnapps hall in in, uh, in in Germany was not respectable. It was like it was like the Kabak in Russia. It was. The place where the guy is there, you know, there's no place to sit down. There's no way to socialize. It's just a dark, dank place where you go to forget your worries and get your mind blasted as quickly as you can and enrich the state at the same point, you know, the enrich the, the Junker aristocracy in that. So in, in many cases in Germany, you had the socialists and the liberals kind of taking up the mantle of beer temperance, as it were, against, uh, against schnapps, against gin, um, and... Uh, and trying to to promote one at the expense of the
0: other. I want to close out with just two briefly before we move on, um, and, and, and sort of the, and, and take a break. I want to close out with two briefly with two more European examples. Um, you mentioned the Gothenburg, Gothenburg, uh, model. Uh, and this is Sweden. This is Sweden before Volvo and Ikea. This is a, an autocratic cold, uh, peasant country uh, where they drink a lot of Akavit. Um, and, uh, there's a very interesting temperance model that begins there. Could you briefly describe it and explain its connection to the rest of Swedish politics? You got like two minutes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So this is, I mean, it's fascinating because it's not just a Swedish thing. It comes to the United States and becomes like the primary alternative to prohibitionism. And the idea was that, you know, Sweden was, you know, drowning in Aquavit as, as it were, and um, had these, these problems that you see in a lot of these countries um, but they came up with this very novel system uh, that uh, starts in Falun, ends up being adapted in, in Gothenburg, which which is where it gets its name in, you know, in the 1850s. But the idea was to entrust the local liquor trade to a small corporation of sort of the most respectable citizens in, in, this, uh, in, in the municipality. And they would run it in, not in the interest of profit, but they would run it in the interest of sort of the, the public well-being and, and of temperance. Um, and so... The idea was that they would, you know, they they would put in their money into this corporation. They would vow to take only 5% profit. Now, anything above and beyond that 5% would be reinvested into the community to uh, promote local philanthropy, you know, local farmers, cooperatives, and so on. Um, And the idea was to take the profit motive out of the liquor trade, that you don't have a, you know, a a Tsela or a tavern keeper who's trying to get everybody drunk as they can to make more money off of them. And what you see in these cases with the Gothenburg system is an incredible reduction in the amount of sort of societal alcoholism, reductions in crime, reductions in arson, all these sorts of things. And then all this extra money just leads to kind of a blossoming of, of Swedish civil society, um, you know, now that they're, they're flush with these workers' cooperatives, these farmers' cooperatives and so on. Um, and it really becomes almost, you know, like, like a miraculous system, and it doesn't have the same downsides as an outright prohibition, where people are homebrewing and so on. You can still go and get your liquor if you wanted it, um, but it's not being literally shoved down your throat as it was in some other countries.
0: And so this is becomes once again on the spectrum of temperance and prohibition. I can see there are some Gothenburg advocates and other people who thought no Gothenburg advocate, advocacy, that's just that's just weakness. You need to have utter complete prohibition. You're one of those weak-knee Gothenburg advocates and 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 so on.
1: Yeah, and so whether it's in the United States or uh, around the globe, the, the argument was that this is making the government itself complicit in the trade right. and uh, in, in a, a trade that that should not have a part in. Um, mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this is that you've got a lot of this is the the foundations of, you know, the state liquor stores in the United States. The mm-hmm. idea that, um, you know, we're going to have this run by the, the state and it's not going to be necessarily run by private interests who are going to try to make money off of this. Uh, although states then try to ramp up money, which is a, a bit of a problem there. Um, so that, that, you know, and, and you do have some interesting commonalities between sort of these Gutenberg dispensaries. And nowadays you're starting to see these with, you know, sort of marijuana dispensaries. I, I've been
0: thinking, of, I, I, all the time I was reading about your book on prohibition, I kept thinking about marijuana and yeah. also, also the lottery, um, and the, the way that state controls the lottery and the tax that it imposes upon the poorest, uh, in, in society, um, but before we before we take a break, um, could you explain Tomas Masaryk, uh, the the George Washington of Czechoslovakia, and and the unbelievable fact that temperance seemed to have been perhaps the most important part of his political philosophy? Um, it's a little it's a little strange, but
1: how about it? Sure, uh, you know Masaryk. If you if you go to I used to teach um, you know summer classes in in Prague, um, you know sort of study abroad stuff, and you go there, you know, got Masaryk statues all over the place. He's their, their George Washington. And, um, and, and so he was sort of the, the founder of modern Czechoslovakia uh, as it emerges after World War I from, uh, you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, and so fascinating guy in, in many ways. He, um, he he's, starts as an academic, as a sociologist. He's interested in, um, you know, uh, all sorts of different uh, social issues. And then sort of gets into politics, whilst also being a professor in in Prague. Uh, marries a woman from uh, the United States. spends a lot of time going back to the United States, um, back back and forth. Um, and so he's, you know, within this entire system in you know the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, where he sees the Czechs and the Slovaks, you know, which at that point in time, obviously, were uh, oftentimes just lumped into Czechoslovakia, right. You know, as, as sort of one of these oppressed peoples, uh, you know, so you had a dual empire, the Austro-Hungarian empire, you had two capitals in Budapest and, and, uh, in Vienna. Um, but nobody talked about, you know, sort of the, the other peoples, you know, you've got the, the Yugoslav, uh, populations, but also you have the Czechoslovaks who were like, you know, we're completely left out of this system. We have no representation. Uh, We are oppressed and and we want to have greater representation, um, you know, greater, um, you know, I I guess, uh, independence ultimately from from the system. Um, And so he was, you know, he wasn't much of a socialist. He was more of a liberal, I guess, in terms of up and down the political spectrum. Uh, And he saw uh, temperance and in the way that a lot of, um, you know, I guess people around the globe at that point in time did, you know, a, of a more liberal persuasion that this was, you know, temperance was evidence of self-control. And it was part of sort of this, this moral uplift that would prove the Czechoslovaks as worthy of self-government, you know, that we have to be respectable and we have to be, we can't be a bunch of drunks and then try to pretend that we can run our own business. Um, and, you know, part of that is, you know, if, if we're temperate, then we can resist those same sorts of liquor dynamics that you see in Russia, that you see in all these other colonial places where most of the profit is going not only to the aristocracy, as it was with the Junkers in, in Germany, uh, but also to the state. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not only the, the financial aspect of you know keeping our money in our own pockets, but it's also a means of kind of self-determination. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's writing all these temperance tracts uh, before World War One. Uh, when World War One breaks out, um, he's in a very unenviable position because he's fight. you know, the Austro-Hungarians are fighting against the, you know, the, the Russians. Um, and, you know, the Czechs and the Slovaks are our fellow Slavs. And it's like, well, why are we fighting against our fellow, fellow Slavic brethren, um, you know, under the banner of the Austrians and the Germans? That doesn't make any sense to us. And so, you know, the, 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 the Czechs and the Slovaks didn't fight particularly well because it wasn't like they had much in it at that point in time. Um, and so Macharik goes all over the place. He actually goes to Russia to sort of, uh, spring from prison, you know, from, you know, their their POW camps, uh, you know, this this so-called Czech brigade, um, this Czech division of, of a hundred thousand Czech soldiers, uh, you know, that he's raising his own army, you know, to fight for liberation of, of Czechoslovakia. Um, Eventually, you know, the the, world, the war ends before they can actually see any action on, on sort of the Western Front, which is where they were, were intending to go. Um, but he kind of returns home as this triumphant hero, uh, the guy who went out and, and raised a, a Czechoslovak army, um, negotiated with uh, the Americans and, and Woodrow Wilson to kind of recognize the self-determination of all these European states. Um, but also, when he comes back, you know, he starts to encourage temperance and prohibition you know there was encouragement of in, in the same sort of way we talked about with germany uh you know beer wine that was seen as as okay uh but there were still dramatic alcohol restrictions against you know uh i guess the, the the hard liquor that was being uh devised at that point in time and so even he recognizes um sort of the limitations he never enacts a, sort of a, a draconian prohibition like we would have in the united states or or in russia uh, but he's very outspoken on, you know, he thinks temperance uh, is in everybody's best interests, um, especially the, the Czechoslovak people. But he also recognizes as a liberal that he's in the minority position, that mm. uh, that most people don't agree with his position. So he's not exactly going to force it down anybody's throat.
0: So to speak. The uh, This yeah. is the perfect uh, place to take a break, uh, perhaps to refill your glass. Uh, we'll be right back. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Geo Savin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. Okay, um, I, I think that we've. we if we don't watch out, we're going to be going. Uh, this is going to be a Joe Rogan length podcast, and uh, and and. You have to be high to listen to his, that, so uh, we, and I, I don't think that would be good for a podcast about uh, temperance and prohibition. So uh, I'm very briefly, um, let's talk about the British Empire, which is like a third of your book. <laughs> we've just <laughs> we've just we've only gotten to the first third. We skipped over lots of stuff, um, but uh, the you point out that uh, we, we just mentioned how in in lots of places in, in Africa the first factory is a distillery. Um, and it became very – those people within the British Empire um, who opposed their domination by the empire, for their domination from London, uh, one of the first ways they could fight against that was to advocate temperance. So could you explain how temperance becomes a sort of defense against imperialism?
1: Sure. Um so, yeah, this is, you know, it starts off, uh, you know, chapter five, when we're starting to talk about the the British Empire, you know, there's a reason that this whole thing kind of happens in the age of empires. Um, and, and so I look at all these empires around the globe. Um, and obviously, the big one at that point in time is the British Empire, uh, on which the, the sun never set. Um, and it was interesting, because we don't usually think about it in terms of alcohol as being an, an instrument of colonialism and imperialism and colonial domination. Uh, But that's really what it was in in many cases. Uh, And and so there was sort of the similar playbook that you find uh, when it comes to sort of British colonialism. One is to, uh, you know, bring with them uh, industrial liquors, you know, bring the gin, bring the whiskey and so on. Um, And then use that as a, a means to trade with, you know, native populations, whether those native populations are in India or in uh, South, you know, or, or in Africa, uh, South Africa, or Australia, or even North America, which we could talk Mm -hmm. about as well. Um, And then what usually happens is that the natives who have no oftentimes indigenous tradition of alcohol consumption, and certainly nothing as mind blasting as uh, sort of these industrial distillates, um, get rip roaring drunk, can't control themselves. And then, you know, all of a sudden, the British end up clutching their pearls, recoiling in horror and saying, Oh, look at how uncivilized they are. You know, look at this tremendous brutality. And that becomes sort of justification for why, you know, sort of the white man's burden for, you know, sort of the the British of why we need to dominate and why we need to, um, you know, to, to lead these people. So, um, so you see that same sort of playbook, like I said, whether it's in Australia or Canada or North America, you know, the United States uh, or in South Africa or India or even in Ireland, the people talk about Ireland as like the first British colony. You have these same sorts of, of mechanisms of, uh, of domination. Um, and what's really strange about this is that we, we think about, you know, the Irish as, well, you know, <laughs> as, as heavy drinkers, you know, from you know, sort of American immigration and so on. Uh, and so we would think that that's the last place that you would find a temperance organization uh, in Catholic Ireland. Uh, But actually, it it turns out this is one of the the foundations of sort of transnational temperance. Another one of these nodes, if you were, will, in sort of this international network um, is with this guy, Theobald Matthew, Father Theobald Matthew of of Cork. Um, And he's encouraging uh, the Irish to, you know, to stop drinking, you know, the the British gin. Again, even Guinness was seen as being like a temperance drink at this point in time. And, And it was local. The idea was that okay, well, if you're spending money, at least it's going. It, we're keeping it in country as Guinness, opposed to having gu- to go to uh, to England.
0: Guinness is good for you. That that yeah. take that ad campaign takes on a whole new meaning in in that light. That could that for all I know that could well go back to that some, you know, some idea of that. You know, it's not just yeah. it's, it's healthy in all sorts of ways. For one thing, it's not gin.
1: Yeah, to be sure, you know the the, the alternatives are a lot worse.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so it was, it was strange about the, you know, 1850s and so on, uh, you have this sort of massive upsurge in, in temperance and it was temperance nationalism, right? The idea was not just, you know, as it was necessarily with Masharik and Czechoslovakia that uh, you know, that we need to uplift ourselves to be worthy of, 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 um, you know, sort of self-determination and independence. It was also we have to strike at the financial footing of the British empire, um, which I forget who it was who said one of these uh, historians called, you know, the British empire, the world's first narco military empire that it's, it was entirely funded by the alcohol trade in, you know, South Africa in India or by the opium trade. If you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, the opium wars going into to China, same sort of dynamics. It was, you know, using these highly addictive substances, as a mechanism to sort of open up trade um, because they, they have a self-perpetuating demand. You know, mm-hmm. Once you get people addicted to something, you know, if you were to trade with them like durable goods, if you were to trade pots and pans, well, those can last for 20, 30 years. If you trade with them liquor, you've got a customer forever.
0: Well, I mean, that's the first thing the East India Company tried, right? It was wool in India. Doesn't, doesn't really, you know, doesn't go very far. Um, they didn't really need it. Um, th- but when you sell liquor, you know, uh, then you've got yourself a competitive advantage. Um, could you, exp- uh, how does Gandhi fit into this? I mean, you would expect that he would be in favor of, he would be a teetotaler. I mean, he's a vegetarian, uh, you know, all the rest of it. But this, this is much earlier in his career when he still wore like suits. Um, uh, there's a, a great picture of him. Uh, and, and a group photograph of uh, a bunch of uh, temperance campaigners in South Africa. So was this, was he do, just sort of recapitulating this sort of Irish playbook that started in the 1850s?
1: Uh, a lot of different things going on there. It's, it's a, it is a great photo. I like that one. But he's actually at Tolstoy Farm, right? So he's at, you know, his, what uh, uh, later would become sort of ashram in, in India. But, um, uh, you know, he's got his, his colleagues and so on, and it's, it's kind of a self-help you know, community. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so Gandhi is is a fascinating character, obviously, for for a lot of history, Um, you know, but he first goes to to London, and uh, he makes a vow to his mother that he's not going to, uh, he's not going to eat meat. Um, You know, he's gonna remain a vegetarian, and he's not going to drink, right. And so that those were the two big temptations at that, that that point in time. Um, Eventually, he, you know, uh, he passes the bar, um, becomes a, a barrister in in London and then gets a, a station in, uh, in South Africa. And so for the first, you know, 20 years of his political life, he's living in South Africa and he's seeing these dynamics of, you know, sort of domination and subordination, uh, within the British empire. So he goes, uh, you know, when he was in London, I should say, you know, if we rewind a moment, um, to be an Indian in, london to be in in england was to be a member of the british empire and you were given all the same rights and privileges in london so you actually had indian-born members of parliament even so they could vote and so on so he saw himself as being um you know part of the british empire and and sort of a citizen of of the world so but then when he goes to south africa Mm. as an indian uh he sees sort of the colonial domination of uh sort of you know sort of the the racial hierarchy where, you know, sort of the whites are on top and the the native Africans are on bottom and he doesn't really fit in. And so the, you know, the the British there see him as a colored man and and not worthy of the equality. And so for Gandhi, he's like, "Why am I getting equal treatment in London, but I'm not getting it in this other part of the British empire. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, And so he's pushing for greater um, self-determination for the, the Indian community in South Africa and he's also looking at, at what also is going on at that point in time in South Africa is an indigenous temperance movement um, led by uh, a lot of native leaders throughout you know the Southern African areas, but most notably it was this guy King Kama the Third of of which is today Botswana, um, who was probably the most outspoken because he understood that that gin and whiskey were the elements, I guess, were the instruments with which the, you know, the, the British South Africa company was trying to open up their, uh, their territory. Um, and so he saw, you know, uh, prohibitionism as a way to keep his population, not only clean and sober, but also maintain their own sort of territorial sovereignty at the expense of, you know, Cecil Rhodes and the, the British South Africa company. So, mm-hmm. so I think Tolstoy, excuse me for talking about Gandhi, you know, one, he's getting a little bit of it from his uh, correspondence with uh, with Tolstoy. It's the last. Very,
0: you say the last letter that Tolstoy wrote was to Gandhi. Or yeah, So yeah. it's, it's amazing. <laughs>
1: yeah, isn't it crazy? You know, this, that was the, the big correspondence that they had. Uh, you know, going back and forth. They had never met personally, obviously, uh, due to the distances involved. Uh, but they had a, a mutual respect for each other, based upon sort of these shared uh, principles of understanding that the state is. Um, you know, is the mechanism of, of domination. And the only way to fight against that is through nonviolent protest, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, so protest becomes, you know, um, a a major part of this. And so even beginning in South Africa, but even more so when he moves later on uh, after world war one to India um, really kind of kicks this temperance organization into high gear. Um, So you've got on one hand, you've got sort of the Indian national Congress, Um, you know, led by uh, Rajagopalachari and Gandhi and so on. Um, And they are obviously focused on non-cooperation with the British, pushing for greater autonomy from the British under the British Raj and and ultimately outright independence. That doesn't sit well with the British for obvious reasons. Um, So anytime that um, the British kind of clamp down on quote-unquote political activism in India... They would kind of shift over to uh, the Indian National Congress had its own temperance organization, um, and they would essentially argue for you know uh, for, for temperance, and that was seen as politically palatable. To the Mm -hmm. british because it was social activism not political activism even though the people who were in these two organizations were the exact same people (laughs) right and so anytime that like i said they would clamp down on the political side they say no no we're just doing temperance activism we're just trying to you know work for the benefit of our population and and so on and that was seen as being okay and Mm -hmm. so in many cases and this is true in 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 situations all around the globe uh, temperance becomes kind of like this trojan horse for all sorts of different movements that cannot, you know, uh, that, that are not allowed to kind of rear their heads in, in other places, whether you talk about, you know, uh, African-Americans, you know, uh, you know, before abolitionism, if you talk, you know, about the women's movement, um, you know, as being part of suffragism, uh, for underrepresented populations that have no political power, temperance is a great Trojan horse.
0: So that you've just uh, taken me into where I want to finish this conversation, which is um, you you have a enormous section um, on the United States, uh, but it's informed. But I want to do that in about, and just briefly, uh, what, having looked at all this, um, this global history of temperance and prohibition and um, what, how can that begin to reframe the way that we see the prohibition movement, the temperance movement in the United States, uh, which is basically, uh, they tried, it was stupid, it failed. And, um, which is kind of how it's taught. Uh, and it's, uh, I'm sure there are some professors that teach it in, in a richer and more dynamic and nuanced way, but eh, not so many of them, probably. And uh, so, but given all that, I, I'm thinking, I'm picking up on certain sort of perspectives and principles that you've been, that we can see a, a continuity in between the various nations that we can then sort of recast and re understand the history of American prohibitionism.
1: Yeah. And this was, you know, that was the, the point of the book it, originally, as I proposed, it uh, was supposed to be like eight chapters, look at all these different empires around the globe, and then have like a nice one chapter summary of, you know, what do we learn from this? Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that you learn when you look around is that it's, um, you know, a movement against predatory capitalism uh, in, in many cases. Right. And so it's, it's aligned with anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, abolitionism, suffragism, all these sorts of isms, um, you know, they're, they're all part of that same sort of reform movement. Um, and to get to your point, this is, you know, it's kind of the story behind the book, is that uh, I, I had like a little workshop here at, at Villanova within our department, um, you know, and I, I kind of presented all my findings up until that point, you know, the first half of the book. Um, and the, the takeaway was, you know, prohibitionism is in league with Anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, all these sorts of things that I just mentioned. Uh, and my colleague, Jennifer Dixon, who is a, who focuses in on, on, on Turkey and, uh, and, and, and Turkish politics, all sorts of things. Um, and she says, and I'll never forget it. She says, uh, she says, okay, if temperance and prohibitionism is really anti-imperialism, then what about the Native Americans? And I was just like, ah, oh, I don't have an answer for that. I should probably look into that. And that's where the book went from eight chapters to 18 (laughs) chapters and added two more years to the, to the process because it really does. You're like, Oh, okay, well maybe there's something to this. Maybe Mm -hmm. we can apply this to the United States. And the takeaway is what we were talking about earlier is, is that, um, it really expands the scope of what we're talking about when it comes to prohibitionism. We have these people who say, well, the, the first prohibitionists were the native Americans and they were, Arguing the same sort of way, they were fighting against you know quote the, the the white man's wicked water. We don't want to be you know dominated by this European um, you know this, this European product. It's destroying our people. It's tro- destroying their their health and their morals. Um, but it's also in some ways kind of enslaving them to uh, to fur traders and so on. So you have you know from the very first introduction of uh, liquor in North uh, America you have these indigenous populations become kind of the first prohibitionists. Um, And we don't think of it that way, because for the most part, as you mentioned, like prohibitionism and temperance are are usually taught as white people's history, right? Mm -hmm. That it was, um, you know, that it was uh, evangelical Protestants fighting against modernization and immigration and, well, and if and you're not a historian
0: of american religion it's often if you're teaching american political history if you're a political story you're gonna you're gonna bring it up as a political act that happens very late and you can say oh this is so late this is like an already a dead movement somehow it got on it was just they passed this amendment it's very strange and then of course they got rid of it and that's it you know but yeah. um you don't understand the enormous history behind that Uh, that had led up to that moment when they passed the, 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 the the prohibition amendment.
1: Yeah. There's, there's so much to it. And, and like I said, I'm not, I, I started out as a Russia guy, right. You know, so I'm not a, an American historian. So I find myself going to all these archives, you know, going to the library of Congress, national archives, finding out all this rich material on prohibitionism that nobody seems to have focused in on because, you know, we're taught, as you said, you know, that it's, it's white people's history. It comes very late. It starts, you know, late 19th century, maybe early 20th century, and that's it, right? And we don't see the bigger picture of that whole thing. And, mm-hmm. and so it was, you know, I don't know how many sort of aha moments I had when I was researching this and, and trying right. to share it with my wife. Look, I got this thing that's really- well, It's funny. like, really as
0: you say, Jefferson thing. is certainly a temperance advocate. I mean, he's, yeah, against, yeah. he's against he's against liquor. He wants to have wine just, uh, made in Virginia as a way of weaning people off of, of liquor. Of rum. And, and then eventually corn whiskey. Um, we could go on to And then Lincoln famously is a teetotaler. Um, well, it's not that famous, actually. We probably don't think of him that way, but it's very important to him. And it has something to do also with his Whig political philosophy um mm-hmm. it's uh, there are many and he's obviously not an evangelical christian unlike joshua no. Giddings, say who's that who is an, uh, of course a teetotaler etc but this is all related you know i mean this is wendell phillips the abolitionist is then after the civil war is he kind of drops his interest in african-american rights but he is very interested in in rights of native americans and include that's prohibitionism and stopping the liquor t- and we could keep on going through the list of of 19th century figures.
1: Yeah, and, I mean Frederick Douglass as well, I Frederick think was, was the yeah. most famous prohibitionist of his day we don't yes. think about it that way, yeah. I just, you know, I've got David Blight's great book over mm-hmm. there Pulitzer right. Prize winning, amazing wow. never talks about prohibitionism, never talks about temperance because we have it in our minds that that is yeah. conservative reactionary politics that has nothing to do with, with anything else and so um I, I think in some cases, like where when it doesn't make sense to those of us who study history, uh it just kind of gets pushed to the side we We just kind of you know uh, marginalize it, ignore it, um but then we don't get to see that that broader picture that's out there.
0: We marginalize or ignore it or as we sort of started out the conversation by saying we come up with extremely complex schema and mm-hmm. ways of explaining it away I mean they're very difficult to come up with sometimes and hard to like you know get all right um, but we use those as well as to say that it's a, conser- a conservative reaction how can we explain that William it it and you know we we we've turned William we turned William Jennings Bryan into a sort of conservative reactionary which is kind of insane based on mm-hmm. basic prohibitionism and the scope's trial and forget like all the rest of his career um that's just one example, but we, 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 we do that too as a way of explaining away things that don't fit within the way, the way that we are seeing things.
1: Yeah. And, you know, people say, well, it was about anti-German sentiment with the, you know, with the, uh, going into world war one. And I was like, wait a minute, the the Congress that was elected, that instituted prohibition was elected before the war, you know? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, you know, uh, it wasn't like, you know, they say, well, the, 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 probably the most famous explanation is that it was, you know, women did this while the boys were all fighting in world war one. It's like, no, one women couldn't vote <laughs> Two, It wasn't like there was an election that we all had that said, uh, you know, yes or no on prohibition. And you know, the, the, the guys who were out fighting in world war one were universally wet. And the guys who stayed home were universally, dry. none of this makes any sense according so. to like, so we do these, these intellectual gymnastics to try to make it make sense to us. And I think the the other thing that's worth kind of taking away from this is that it's, I found out, you know, through the process of writing the book and then sort of, you know, trying to do some promotions for it, there are three things that Americans hold very, very tight to. One is their politics, another is their religion, and a third is their liquor. Um, And so trying to, you know, people do not like the suggestion that, um, you know, that this was anything other than sort of an an outside imposition on the United States, that this was crazy reactionaries, that this was a fringe movement that that foisted this upon the good, freedom-loving, hard-drinking American. Um, you know, it's hard for them, it's hard for a lot of people to wrap their minds around that this was an overwhelmingly popular movement, you know, yeah. just because of our, our understandings of you know, what freedom is and, and what these, what the goals were, you know, you know, and, and we've, like I said, done these intellectual gymnastics and probably the biggest one I I think it's worth noting um, is the word traffic. Uh, I I talk about this in the conclusion of the book um, that we can kind of chart this with, uh, you know, sort of the big data nowadays and see, you know, you use Google books going back to the n grams and see how language uses has changed over time. We talk about it now as, Prohibition, alcohol prohibition. Um, Nobody 100 years ago used that phrase, alcohol prohibition. They talked about prohibition of the liquor traffic. And it was, you know, prohibition of the liquor traffic. And so somewhere along the lines, after World War II in particular, that word traffic disappears. And so it becomes prohibition of liquor, prohibition of alcohol. And that changes the focus because traffic is, you know, is the exploitative system. It's about making profit. That's what ultimately what the whole thing was about, um, but once that word "traffic" disappears, is when you can kind of get that 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 new focus on well, they were fighting against the alcohol itself, the stuff in the bottle, or against the drunkard, you know, as mm-hmm. a sinner and so on, not thinking about the exploitative system of liquor trafficking, which was really the point going all the way back.
0: Well, my guest today has been Mark Schrad. He is the author of. Smashing the Liquor Machine, a global history of prohibition. Mark, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking.
1: Yeah, thanks. This has been a great discussion.